tonight Talking movies with two guys named Mike They usually cover films that win gold But this series is all Tarantino Rumors and a few of these Michael Madsons in like five Here we go Talking the movies of Q MMOs reviewing movies of Q's Tarantino The rewatch series brought to you by MMO And we're back Tarantino verse once more for Quentin Tarantino's third directorial feature length effort here as we go over Jackie Brown. This is Mike, Mike, and Oscar. I'm your co-host, Mike One. Co-host also Mike coming up, but we should probably explain what we're doing Tarantino's filmography and we're not covering Four Rooms. We're not going to cover Sin City. We're only doing like his stuff, right? Correct. And there's a major <laughs> reason for that. The quality kind of dips when he cameos, even though his scenes are very good. Right. Like his scene in Sin City is the best scene in Sin City. His scene in Four Rooms is by far the best scene in Four Rooms. The other scenes in those films, <laughs> I have a major issue with. So yeah, but we're, we're going to talk about it a little bit in cast and crew throughout yep. this entire rewatch, what he does in between. But we're talking canon Tarantino, yes. Right. Uh, but we will be doing Death Proof because that's, like, divided in halves. Yeah, well, that's its own movie right. still. So, uh, all right, just wanted to clear that up, but I know that we're going to get a lot of snobs saying that Jackie Brown isn't the next movie. Four Rooms was in 95 and it came out before Jackie Brown, but we're doing Jackie Brown. All right, fine. For Tarantino's 10th film, <laughs> we'll do all these little mini-sodes and we'll add it to this playlist. There you go. Uh, yes, Mike, Jackie Brown, any thoughts as we get going here, get the ball rolling? Well, I'm excited to put these eight new segments to work. We got the year in review, so we're talking about 1997, 98. Yeah. Right? Uh, we got our watch stories, which I'm going to be have a consistent watch story that's really for every watch. But we're going to talk about what makes Quentin dance, and I love the music here. Yeah. The homages are are, are very pointed. Mm -hmm. We have MMO performs, and <laughs> one of us will be the opposite gender. Switching genders. Yep. We have trademark. It is 2019 anyway. Yes, we got trademark Tarantino, screenwriting advice, Easter eggs, and connections to the Tarantino-verse and spoilers. Yeah, so Mike, just walk you through what's going to differentiate these Tarantino episodes uh, from the Oscar Spring Profiles we do. From I the, stay on point. <laughs> from the Pixar mess, uh, episodes that we do. So those are the glaring differences. If you've not joined us before for any of those types of episodes, though, welcome aboard. What we can expect from this episode is it's a review broken down ultimately into two halves, though it may have those eight differences within it. The first half of every Tarantino episode is going to be the non-spoiler type. That's where we fit in. The year in review, uh, we recap how we were exposed to the films, what makes Quentin dance. We talk about the homages. Then we have a spoiler warning, which is the MMO performs, MMO theater, as it were. We'll yeah. be reenacting. Re you coined it. <laughs> we enact a, a an interpretation of one of the scenes from the movies that we're covering. That'll lead us into the spoiler section. So the second half of all of these episodes will be spoiler-filled. So if you've not seen these movies, don't worry. We're not spoiling them in the first half. The first half of every Tarantino episode will be spoiler-free. And the way we will start the spoiler-free section is Mike is going to run down the cast and crew. So Jackie Brown is, of course, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. In the three years between Pulp and Jackie Brown, Quentin wrote and directed The Bruce Willis Room... Of Four Rooms, starring Tim Roth as well as the bellhop. Mm -hmm. Tarantino's script for From Dusk Till Dawn, a lot of prepositions going on right now. <laughs> From Dusk Till Dawn was directed by his buddy and fellow Four Roomer, Robert Rodriguez. Tarantino played a lead role in that movie, 
Very disgusting character, but a decent job by him, I would say. I didn't realize he and Rodriguez were so intertwined and yeah. like so buddies throughout their career. I knew, obviously, they worked together, but, yeah, they go back a ways. They go back a long ways. In 95, Tarantino hosted Saturday Night Live, and he also played a bit part in the Rodriguez film, Desperado. Desperado. I don't know if that's a song from that movie. Why don't you come to your senses? It's definitely not the scene from that movie. (laughs) It's all I have. I'll keep going. (laughs) And Tarantino had another starring role that has been lost to the anals. Not saying that word right. Not at all. (laughs) Of history. The role was Johnny Destiny in Destiny Turns on the Radio. This is a movie with Dylan McDermott. This is not anything I have even heard of. It might have been Dermot Mulroney. Yeah, one of the two. Whatever that was, Mike. He was in it. Tarantino, starring role, titular character. You ever see it? Ever know No, I never even heard of it until I looked on IMDb. Good. So there it is. I guess we'd have to do a, a mini-sode. <laughs> Add it on the list. On J- Johnny Destiny down the line. What was uh, the one Keaton did? Johnny Dangerously. Don, yeah, yeah, that's a great movie. Has, has its moments. Yeah. Really good moments. I love spoofs <laughs> like that. All right, so while Tarantino got Jackie Brown ready, he's doing a lot of acting. He's doing the form rooms, like I said. Great scene in four rooms, for the record. I don't uh, know if I've ever seen I wouldn't the movie. Mu- yeah, you just watch that scene. It's worth just watching right. that scene. Jackie Brown is actually adapted from the Elmore Leonard novel, Rum Punch. I'm supposed to roll my R's there, but I didn't. Mike will have a little more on that in a minute. Yes. As for the cast of Jackie Brown, Pam Greer plays the titular character of Jackie Brown. Greer is, of course, known from Foxy Brown, where the title comes from, and Coffee. I also know her from Mars Attacks, Ghost of Mars. Uh, this past year, she's been in Palms. Uh, the TV series Bless This Mess will be coming out, and uh, the upcoming film Old School Gangsters. She's like the veteran's veteran. She's been around forever and killing it every time. Tarantino changed the role from the book to the screen, Mm -hmm. uh, changed the last name of the character from Burke to Brown, uh, basically to fit Pam Greer, and it pays off in a Golden Globe nomination. And he wanted a catchier title. That's true. Uh, Robert Forster played Max Cherry. Uh, Forster was known from Medium Cool, which is basically you and I. We're not... (laughs) You know, really cool or whatever. <laughs> Extra cool. We're medium hot cool. cool or cold cool. Right. Uh, the Delta Force, The Black Hole, and Alligator. Uh, those were his big hits before Jackie Brownie. You know, he was an indie film guy. He was a bit part guy. He was a TV guy. Tarantino loved his work all the way throughout his career and pinpointed Robert Forster for this movie after auditioning him for Reservoir Dogs. Obviously, that accent not going to really fit. <laughs> Reservoir Dogs, <laughs> not going to work. But I found a whole new life with another favorite director of ours, though, after this, with David Lynch getting his teeth into him. Absolutely. So Forrester would go on after Jackie Brown to Me, Myself, and Irene, where that accent fits as well. Yes. David Lynch territory mm-hmm. with Mulholland Drive. The Descendants with Mr. Payne, Alexander Payne. And last year's What They Had, what I thought his performance and What They Had was tremendous. The movie was lacking because What They Had was a perfect ending, but they kept telling the story <laughs> you love that for joke. another hour you've held on to that joke since you reviewed the movie and then another hour after that they had they found another ending but they didn't want to go with that ending either so i guess life goes on they might make movies like life 
They keep going on and on and on. Fair enough. Like Hemingway says. <laughs> anyway, Samuel Jackson is Ordell Robbie. What a ridiculous uh, looking human. Jackson would go on to Sphere and the Star Wars prequels as Mace Windu. That would follow this one. But like we said last week, Sam Jackson, he also does a lot of cool parts. You know, he does smaller parts and, and bigger movies, or he does smaller mm-hmm. movies that tend to become iconic when he's not starring in those blockbuster films. You know, he's a small part in Deep Blue Sea. Yes. It's a great part. <laughs> great in that. part. He's, he's got a big part in a small movie, The Red Violin, which okay. is critically acclaimed. And then he does something like M. Night Shyamalan's Unbreakable, which was fairly low budget at the time, yeah. even though it was a buzzworthy movie. And he just knocks that out of the park to, to blockbuster status. So. Milk to paycheck 19 years later for it in a sequel. Uh, absolutely. Bridget Fonda is Melanie Ralston. Fonda was best known from Single, Single White Female, Point of No Return, and The Godfather Part 3. After Jackie Brown, she'd go on to A Simple Plan, which she's excellent in. Lake Placid, which I really like as a movie, as a, just a fun movie. She got an Emmy nomination for In the Gloaming, which apparently is a title that mm. makes sense to other people. Okay. And a Golden Globe nom for No Ordinary Baby. Fonda famously quit acting, Mike, in early 2000s and has not come back. I think she's doing okay for herself. She's doing very okay for herself. <laughs> she's she's well, alive and well, but did, did. She gave up the acting bug for sure. Michael Keaton is cop Ray Nicoletti, who's actually the same character from Out of Sight. Yeah. Because they're both Elmore Leonard novels. Tarantino didn't even know Steven Soderbergh at the time, but they both kind of came to an agreement. It it helps that Out of Sight comes out after Jackie Brown. Sure. Tarantino's the hottest director on the planet. Yep. He wants to share something with your film. That's good buzz. (laughs) All of that worked. They they shared the character, and, and Elmore Leonard was extra happy. Elmore Leonard, every time he's interviewed Mike, is very happy for a novelist who's probably a guy that doesn't show a lot of emotion something like 26 of his works adapted into film i'd be happy too and he says this is like his favorite one (laughs) well jackie brown we'll get into that all right from mr mom to she's having a baby to beetlejuice batman batman returns the paper you know when i think of michael keaton i think of star in the 80s i don't think of a guy who just continuously puts out good work but you look at his career filmography and every couple of years there's something really really good so uh, it's almost like we all forgot michael keaton yeah. no we didn't forget michael keaton he's always done good stuff yeah. one thing after another and he keeps having comebacks it feels like too you know, like it felt like the batman stuff was one thing and then he had this as like a comeback effort and then it was a lull and then he had like birdman and spotlight was a comeback effort yeah i, I want to do the same good work always and then everybody just pinpoints it as Forgets oh and another comeback. Look at this guy. Oh, another episode of MMO this week. A comeback <laughs> from Mike and Mike. That's a terrible joke. Be a comeback according to SoundCloud stats. Super they nerd. I know. You're, belly up today. You're up. You're upset about that. Not happy. Let's talk about Robert De Niro though. <laughs> Robert De Niro plays Luis or Louis Gara, and this was the strangest casting to me. Why would you need De Niro here? We're gonna get into it. Did this movie, though, I'm asking you a question here that I think is a good one. Did this movie set De Niro up for future comedies, analyze this, meet the parents? Because he does have some comedic goods delivered here at that, some point. Yeah, it's, sick it, way. It, it does. That and a checkbook, I think, set him up for those, right? <laughs> because he was playing so one type for you. And this kind of does go in line with his casino, Goodfellas roles, all those silent but deadly tough guys and mm-hmm. you know we were waiting for the other shoe to drop with this one and it drops 
You get there. It definitely drops. <laughs> Let's. We're going to get into that. As for the rest of the cast, Jackie Brown also stars Rush Hour's Chris Tucker as Bob Kind Martin. of. Yeah. <laughs> Lisa Gay Hamilton is Sharonda. She's been on a ton of great stuff. Uh, recently, she was Condoleezza sort of Rice in uh, Vice. Oh, okay. Michael Bone is Mark Dargis. Tommy Lister Jr. is Winston. Hattie Wilson is Simone. And Sid Haig... Yeah, that Sid Haig from all the uh, schlock movies of the 70s <laughs> to all the Rob Zombie films of lately is just judge. And he yeah. is a judge in this in this film. <laughs> Michael, you got some specs in a year in review. So written and directed by Tarantino, obviously. Tarantino would only be at the debut of this film in three cities before its wide national opening on Christmas Day 1997. He would be at the opening in New York. Obviously, he made the L.A. premiere because... And the third opening was at Richard Linklater's Austin Film Society's benefit screening on December 20th, 1997. At that event, it was actually Linklater who re revealed in his introduction to Tarantino that the final Easter egg given in our Pulp Fiction episode seems to be the actual accounting of history. Hmm. That Quentin watched as Pam Greer tried out an audition for the role that ultimately went to Rosanna Arquette in Pulp Fiction and just couldn't cast her, thinking her too strong a woman and too big a star to play the bit part of a drug dealer's girlfriend. So Tarantino once again dumped conventions on their heads in many ways and went about writing a script that would center around middle-aged people who all see the same opportunity to make good on their one last shot at glory while themselves mired in lives filled with averageness and disappointment centered around Pam Greer's strong female lead. So Hollywood usually de-ages yes. these characters. And I this, thought this, this was a very unique aspect of this. A unique and courageous move to say, no, I'm going to go with 1970s movie stars. I'm going to go with characters that are in their 40s and 50s and say they're in their 40s and 50s. On the heels of Pulp Fiction Reservoir Dogs, too. I, yeah. This comes out, people are expecting, all right, what's this guy going to do after Pulp Fiction? He had every A-lister at his disposal right. at this moment. Is he going to be sexier? Is it going to be more violent? Is it going to be more gratuitous? Just give it to me, give it to me. He, he, I guess, knew those expectations. He said he clearly wanted to work with Pam Greer in a leading capacity. And by the director's own words, Tarantino's now, he knows people were expecting a repeat of the style of Pulp Fiction, or Pulp Fiction 2, and that wasn't at all what he was going for. Talking with Entertainment Weekly back in 97, Tarantino said, quote, I felt I'd gone about as far as I could with my signature shooting style, so this one is at a lower volume than Pulp. It's not an epic. It's not an opera. It's a character study. I knew I didn't want to go bigger than Pulp, so I went underneath it. So those two things played in concert and would establish basically the motivation for Tarantino to write this film, as well as his love for black exploitation cinema. No, the soundtrack to the film Coffee you hear throughout this movie is not a coincidence. Mm -hmm. And a love and respect for Elmore Leonard's writing style, who wrote the book Rum Punch, like Mike told you, in which this film is actually an adaptation of. So again, we have a Tarantino film that is devoid of any real meaning with regards to being a reflection of what was going on in pop culture in the real world during its production, but nonetheless, one that would again prove to be a critical and financial success, albeit to a much lesser degree than his first two films, which, again, may be the two greatest indie films of all time. All that being said, the Delphonics, they probably got, you know, more records sold. <laughs> they probably got a couple more vinyls sold, yeah, Definitely. for sure. Uh, film was made, this film, that is, was made for a $12 million budget, ended up grossing about $74.7 .7 million total. Those numbers, according to, ironically, thenumbers.com, with $39.7 of that coming domestically. That's about 53% of its total box office, according to Box Office Mojo. Like Pulp Fiction before, Jackie Brown would end up going wide in nearly 1,400 theaters and was distributed by Miramax, though again, its critic scores, like its box office, while great for any random indie or small-budget film, had to have been considered a bit of a disappointment. 7.5 IMDb score, though an extremely respectable 87% tomato meter, 85% audience score breakdown on Rotten Tomatoes, mm -hmm. obviously making it certified fresh. 
It carries a 64 meta rating, though, which would prove to be the lowest rated score of Tarantino's directorial filmography for any of his films. So that's a disappointment factor, and we're going to sure. get into that. But basically, it's not Pulp Fiction. It's not Reservoir Dogs. It's yeah, that's the reason. It's, it's the slow, expectation. Slow burn, heist, mystery, right. whatever. Character study, stuff. like he says. I and think that's true. very suiting. Uh, though he again would find his work being at least represented in one category at the 97-98 Academy Awards, as Robert Forster landed a nomination for the supporting acting category, where he'd lose out to Robin Williams in Goodwill Hunting. This, despite the fact that it was actually Samuel L. Jackson who landed the lone actor knob at the Golden Globes that year for lead actor in the comedy or musical. Pam Greer also landed nomination at the Golden Globes that year and would reach their highest exposure nomination as she too was nominated at the Globes for lead actress in a comedy or musical. Both Jackson and Greer can feel good at least about losing to the eventual Oscars winners in their categories as Jack Nicholson and Helen Hunt would win those categories for their roles in As Good As It Gets. Which also brings up the fact to remember that this was the 1997 film year, one of the most prestigious of all time, the year of Titanic, Goodwill Hunting, As Good As It Gets was out there, Jack winning. So that's important to remember as well. We have an early retrospective yeah. on that. One, one of, of our, our first episodes. One of our first ones uh, that, that was a blast to do. This makes some sense for the Hollywood Foreign Press, though. Finally, we have to go back to 1998-97 for them to make sense to me. Because this this was a huge European hit for, the, for it to double its box office, yeah. essentially, in Europe. It, it was a big deal back then. And this was a super popular film, popular in the United States and over there. Equally so, if not more so, over there. This made sense for the Hollywood Foreign Press to give it more love than the Academy. Why don't they make sense today, Mike? <laughs> I don't know. Neither one does, speaking of either HFPA or the Academy, I think, in different parts. But that's a good point. For his part, though, Tarantino always seemed most flattered, if not outright shocked, that he received the blessing of Elmore Leonard for doing right by the original source material of Leonard's Rum Punch book. Famously, Tarantino was hesitant to reveal the change he made to Leonard for fear of not wanting to get the author upset with him, such as changing main character Jackie Burke's last name to Brown and changing her from a white woman in the book to a black woman played by Pam Greer in the film, though in the special edition extras of the Jackie Brown DVD, a little documentary titled Jackie Brown, How It Went Down, mm-hmm. Tarantino is sure to add that his account was Elmore told him he thought the script was not only maybe the best adaptation of Elmore's work he had ever read, but also maybe the best script he ever read, period. Though it's curious how Elmore, who was in fact interviewed for that special segment himself, affording him the opportunity to say these things on a first-hand basis chose not to do so. This is Tarantino saying Elmore told him this, that it was the greatest adaptation of his work. <laughs> anyway, that's different. That's a little different than what I said earlier and what I heard Tarantino say. It could be true. I mean, we, but this is not a man without an ego, as we've talked about in Tarantino. Now, are you saying that Leonard declined to say it because you didn't hear it, or did... It yes, it wasn't, it wasn't there. It wasn't there. It wasn't on the, oh, okay. the only snippet from that. Because he seemed pretty happy, Mr. He did. Leonard, yeah, sure. in all his interviews, sure. and, in, and that documentary in particular. Uh, is, is that you're done with the specs? Tarantino made it up. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Plot premise reads, a middle-aged woman finds herself in the middle of a huge conflict that will either make her a prophet or cost her life. Prophet, P-R-O-F-I-T. Not like a Muhammad-type prophet there. Make her a, uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, our first watch stories. My first watch was about 48 hours ago. I've never seen this movie before. Never. I, I just never had exposure to now, it. Now, is that because people told you that this was kind of a letdown from his other movies? or you Maybe. Like, I knew it wasn't as revered and as 
beloved as pulp or reservoir dogs or anything like that i also think the times i went to sit down and watch it i was intimidated by the two hour 32 minute runtime that it takes to sit through i had to do it in two two sittings this one time it's a lot of movie yeah it is a lot of movie and it's slow at parts so uh, that was my exposure to it but you have a story well years ago i don't have a specific time and date but i do remember that this was perhaps the biggest movie letdown of my film obsessed life in high school expectations. because my expectations were so freakishly mm. high coming out of Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs and Kill Bill, whatever I had watched pre- previous right. to this. And I figured this was going to be the same vein, same kind of Tarantino. And yet he makes basically an adaptation, a faithful adaptation of right. a Le- Leonard novel. And it feels like a novel. Yeah, it and, does. And a lot of the rhythms feel like a novel and that's great. You know, we, we watch a lot of movies like this that we enjoy. Hell, I like, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, right. which is a very slow brooding and, in a way, a very much a character study and is not quite as cinematic. Even though, you know, they edit the hell out of this. We'll get into that as well. And Tarantino's really innovative with his shot selection. Love the camera angles. But Quentin says that he hopes it gets better upon rewatch. Now, I probably watched this movie three or four times before this study, I watched it twice for this study. I have a definitive answer on that. I enjoy this movie in a way where it's solid to me every time. And I sure. do enjoy it. And it doesn't, it, it lags a little bit at times. He gets indulgent. But for the most part, I do enjoy it. I don't understand, and what I want to examine here is all of the, it's so underrated that we have to talk about it more and praise it more. It's one of those, like The Ringer did it, had a big thing on it where, you know, all those guys are saying it's their favorite Tarantino movie. And that's fine. If you love, like, Elmore Leonard crime you know, right. fiction, maybe right. that or makes maybe sense. Or the, maybe the overt blood and gore of future Tarantino movies aren't for you and you like something more tame. Yeah, I'm not going to criticize anyone that says this is their favorite Tarantino movie. It's not mine already. I could tell you that. Yeah. Um, look, I think he does a lot of things that are forward-thinking. In yes. this movie, especially for 1997, yes. uh, having the focus be on middle-aged people, having there be a strong, strong black woman protagonist in the squarely in the middle of everything going on. Yeah. I mean, Pam Greer is so cool in this movie that she's going toe-to-toe with Mr. Cool and Samuel L. Jackson and playing, supposed to be a character that's not rattled or afraid, and she's believable as not being rattled or afraid. That's a huge move right. for, for a director of his stature at the time. Right, so he, I can appreciate this what he did in terms of looking back at it in 2019. Is it my favorite Tarantino movie? No. Right. So let's get into the uh, production values. I think the cinematography is some of the best I've seen thus far. And again, it's more camera angles than it is camera movement because the pace of this film is much slower. He does not move the camera. Deliberately so. He does not move the camera as much. But the framing is awesome. Like, just keep watching clips of this, guys, and, and rewatch the movie. It's hard to notice when you're actually watching the movie because it's so absorbing in smooth, a way. Yeah. And it does. It's it's really smooth. It gets a little creepy with Bridges Fonda's feet in a few shots. I mean that's fine. <laughs> I don't it becomes get that, a thing. But yeah, that's fine. Uh that's male gazy. But it's yeah. purposely so. And it's strange because you get a POV of one character. But then the other character, like Samuel Jackson, is just constantly talking. Yes. In the scenes with him and De Niro. And yet, we're cutting away to the feet because De Niro's noticing the feet. We're cutting away because De Niro looks up Mm -hmm. to the TV. It's really De Niro's POV in those scenes, which is just bizarre to me. But a definite choice by Tarantino and fascinating. 
Chris Tucker sequence is excellent. He does. That's got to be a crane shot that he uses for that shot. It really is ahead of its time. Nowadays, people would just buy a $50 drone yep. and get the same shot. But I, I imagine that, too. I have that written down. When that whole sequence goes down, I'm sure we'll talk about it in spoilers. But that's all from one. And this is classic Tarantino, if you even want to talk about it. There's a lot of shots in this that are typical. I have written down as trademark Tarantino. This is one of them. That one establishing shot from afar Absolutely. where you're going to let the scene play out in front of you. The choreography and the coordination it takes for those types of shots, or even the tracking shots, such as Pam Greer leaving the mall and, and the camera's facing her the whole time. She's walking towards the camera and it's like a reverse tracking shot because yep. we're only focused on her. The coordination for all those things to go down really is is just insane for a low-budget 90s movie. Yeah, I mean, Tarantino, his filmmaking prowess is super high. I mean, these are thoroughly well-made films. Right. Say whatever you want about the narrative. Say, say what you want. It, it's a well-made film. So even when we say it's not our favorite... It's, it's, the goods are there. Yeah, of so course. We're fine. With it's higher. Like, it's in like the 90th percentile as far as filmmaking goes. Definitely, definitely. There's also a trunk shot, which is awesome. It's the one I was try trying to say for spoilers, um, but yeah, that's... Third movie in a row. Yeah. You'll, well, you'll talk about it. The editing, as you mentioned before, was smooth. Sally Menking is phenomenal. She's awesome. Uh, it's musical. It was a tragedy when she died too soon. Mm -hmm. Look, I was a little disappointed with the production design, and Tarantino kind of explains it in a lot of the interviews. There's a 50-minute interview that I listened to this morning, Mike. You were upset with it. The production design I was disappointed with because he went on location for it all. He did not. He says, when I go to, I want to call it Fat Boy Slims, but it's <laughs> Jack Rabbit, Jack Slims. Rabbit Slims. When I go to I Jack Rabbit please change the song. <laughs> I... Like to build sets, says, sure. says Tarantino. And he puts all these little touches and all these little things. And, and the rewatchability on all his previous films, just from the crazy apartment room, right? Right. With, in Pulp Fiction, to you know, the sets are amazing. Like, we didn't even realize that the safe house was a morgue, or what, what was it? A coffin. Coffin um, maker. Yeah. And they had, they had whatever number of reservoir right. dogs there were. They had that many coffins right. in a right. shot at one extra point. Extra Easter egg. That, uh, yeah, your brother uh, brought up to our attention. But you didn't feel like there was... He says that this film is based in 95 and comes out in 97. So it's supposed to be essentially a present-day film. But he purposely did some things to make it feel a little more retro to have that 70s exploitation era yeah, film. Yeah, making it about old people. Well, not just that, I would imagine. But you, you didn't like any of it? You didn't, you didn't, I didn't, didn't register I didn't dislike it, but I was looking for those goods. Like, I okay. want Steve Buscemi to just show up, and, and it didn't happen. <laughs> so I'm a little disappointed. But I will say the costume design is just mwah, chef's kiss as good as we've seen. De Niro's goofy-ass outfits, Salvation Armory, as Ordell <laughs> says. And then, of course, Ordell. Everything he does is just magnificent, Apparently, the way he looks. Apparently, I think it was Mental Floss said that the whole look of Ordell was just Samuel L. He wanted to look like the, the kung fu master sitting on a mountain, and Tarantino gives yep. uh, Sam Jackson all the credit in the world for coming up with that aesthetic and that look. And Do you know how ridiculous the beard in that, on his face would have to be in real life. He must have like a foot long beard that covers maybe seven strands worth of hair coming mm -hmm. off his chin yeah. that he braids for that little thin. It's incredible. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. <laughs> like, where does that thing go? That right. thing gets caught in everything. Right. Like, he doesn't eat soup. He doesn't eat cereal. Yeah, yeah. You can't. No. Because it's just, just you're going to eat your beard right. half the time. Ugh. 
Ew. <laughs> and now it's gross, and everybody agrees. Uh, anything else with the sight stuff, Mike? I mean, special effects, I don't really notice anything. There's not really fun. that much. There's yeah. another, another. Uh, we're going back to Reservoir Dogs where we're relying on the uh, explosive gun packs that are... Uh, the squibs. The squibs. They Finally. Play, they play we, a big role here. I again. remembered that word. You, you had to remember <laughs> No, I couldn't remember, time. yeah. So, yeah, that's, that was nice to see his little self-referential thing, but other than that, not really. I think my favorite part of this movie, though, is the sound, and let's get into what made Quentin dance here, because, Mike, the opening of this movie might be the coolest ever. Yeah. Across 110th Street, for me, that lead-in is my favorite part of this movie. It, 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 it all goes down from there. Unfortunately, I, I like the movie, but it, that is just the peak. I am grooving. I am loving that. I have been listening to that song on YouTube, because it's not on Spotify, FYI, on YouTube by uh, Bobby Womack and Peace all day. Great soundtrack. Retro soundtrack. I like that he was so... You can't tell me he wasn't insistent on having Pam Greer star in this movie so he wouldn't be able to slip in a Pam Greer song from the 70s as part of this too. But uh, We have Strawberry Letter 23 by the Brothers Johnson. You mentioned the first song at the top. Long Time Woman by Pam Greer plays. Natural High by Bloodstone. Obviously everything by the Delphonics is permeating and actually working to the plot at certain points. Yeah, didn't I blow your mind this time? Yeah, didn't I blow your mind? Tennessee Stud by Johnny Cash. Who is he by by yeah. Bill Withers, just one song after the There's next. There's the soundtrack from Coffee, which was a black exploitation film in and of itself. So it's it's very old school. Yep. It, it's kind of hip hoppy and soul and R and B. It's really nice. It's quite the opposite of what Tarantino's done so far. Like you said, a lot of these songs connect to old movies. Mm-hmm. They connect to black exploitation films. They connect to uh, Burt Reynolds films. Right. You know, it's very strange. Like whatever he picks, but this is not a black exploitation movie. No. And he's no. very clear about that. It's The genre is different. He just I'd pays, say this is a movie ahead of its time. Yeah, he pays homage to that genre, which is a genre I'm not f- familiar with. But let's get into performances here, Mike. And I, I want to work the Oscar lens in now. Supporting actor, like you said, Robin Williams won for Good Will Hunting. Anthony Hopkins for Amistad. Greg Kinnear, as good as it gets. Burt Reynolds, speak of the devil, for Boogie Nights. That Greg Kinnear nomination is... Not worthy. <laughs> Nominated alongside Robert Forrester as Max Cherry. So look, I, I really like Robert Forrester in this movie. He fits the part well. To me, he's like the seventh best performance. Yeah, in the I'm movie. with you. I didn't. I wasn't blown away. I didn't see Oscar nom from him. Is it just like everybody's happy to see him again? Yeah, and that's the yeah. narrative. I, I couldn't figure it out myself. Like Sam Jackson is in the movie less than Sam Rockwell in Three Billboards, less than Christoph Waltz in Django Unchained. Agree with all this. Look, I mean, I know we've argued that they should be in the lead actor category, but you can argue based on that faux argument that Sam Jackson should be in the supporting category. To me, Sam Jackson is absolutely the best male performance in this film. I mean, Pam Greer's is great, So, but on the male side, Jackson all day. Yep. Like, it makes no sense to me. No argument from me here. Love Sam Jackson. I think Pam Greer is the best performance in the movie, personally. Yeah, that's and fine. She wears everything on her face She's so good. well. To me, she does a lot of movie star things, too, which was really cool to watch. Like, she'll have... You shall have some big moments where she's really putting it on and she's like winking at the audience that she's putting it on. Yeah. She'll go nuts for the cops mm-hmm. and she's selling them a bag of yeah. goods. And then like she has got multiple personalities. But when she has to wear the weight of what she's doing and all her deceptions when the camera just lingers on her face, whether it's in the police precinct or in the last shot of the movie, she has to like wear everything and she actually gets to be herself. She does a great job with the expressions. I love the scenes with Max Cherry so much because she is just relaxing. Yeah. Literally letting her hair down in those scenes every scene she does have her hair down (laughs) and she is talking to him just like uh, she would any
anybody like she's on a date or something. So if Tarantino, as has been reported, I saw in a couple different sources saying that he was upset that Pam Greer didn't get the Oscar, wasn't even considered for the Oscars, he thinks she should have won for this performance. If that's the case, if that was your objective, you know Titanic had come out already. Yeah. Right? You know, as good as it gets, was coming out and was going to be a big Oscars. Just hold the freaking movie until next February or March. It did get released at Christmas. Right. Then again, the Weinsteins were assholes and they probably weren't going to budge from whatever was agreed upon. Yeah, I guess. I mean, there's not like there's like a toy tie in with this one, like we always with Toy Story 2. You know, like I don't understand why the market. Just push it. Push it a week. Two two weeks. They would have had to push it. Yeah. I mean, 97 was just such a loaded year and such a loaded box office year. I don't think anything was beating Helen Hunt because I don't think anything should have beaten Kate Winslet and Helen Hunt beat Kate Winslet so I, I don't think it matters as far as Pam Greer goes unfortunately. You're a big Helen Hunt fan though otherwise right? <laughs> yeah, no, uh, Bridget Fonda's <laughs> performance is really excellent so is De Niro's I think all the performances are just tip top but I don't look I, I, these characters again assassinate themselves so regularly which bothers me and the De Niro and Fonda both of them really get me angry in this film. And I think Fonda's the smartest character in the whole movie. Yeah, it's genius for what happens to her. So, well, yeah, yeah. No, okay. But, so, <laughs> look, I, I, we're going to get into it in a few minutes, but those characters really bother me, and the Max Cherry character bothers, bothers me at the end of it all. So I'm going to talk about it in spoilers. To get into some script thoughts, Mike, like we said, exploitation. It's, it's an homage. It's not the genre here. Coffee and Foxy Brown, there's explicit shout-outs to those movies. Also to Sheba Baby, the font from Sheba Baby is the font of the credits yeah. to this movie. Cool. So that was really cool. There's a uh, YouTube video, Jackie Brown Connections, and they don't get a lot of play, but this is from Stian A. Olson. Everybody should go there because it's non-for-profit. It's just for educational purposes only. Go and watch this video. It's really cool. You'll get into all the nitty-gritty, and, they, of course, they play 110th Street and the soundtrack oh, that's awesome. while they're doing the slideshow presentation. So yeah, I definitely love it. go check that 10 out. 10 minute video. Perfect. Opening credits are basically the opening credits of The Graduate. I would argue the closing shot is too. Yeah. And that's what I, when I read, I don't remember where I read that. I should have sourced it. I'm sorry for not. I remember reading that this was basically the opening scene of The Graduate and I had already watched the movie and I was like, wow, I thought if anything was going to be referencing The Graduate, it would have been, I understand The Graduate, you have the, the two, two. Character. And this is only one, but the exact same way it plays out to me is you have your protagonist going through a billion emotions and wearing it on the face and like, what the hell did I just live through? I'm totally with you on that. There's a scene from the Mad Dog Killer, Dirty Mary Crazy Larry as well, literally on the TV yes. during this movie. That means nothing to me, probably nothing to you. It, it's uh, Peter Fonda. Peter Fonda's in Dirty yeah. Mary Crazy Larry. It's, it's Bridget Fonda watching her dad. I really should have. I sourced these so much better. We were pressed for time. I apologize for repeating this and not having sources. But apparently that movie was not available on video at the time. So Tarantino had to take the 16 millimeter, hmm. press it onto VHS, especially for this movie. So Because he Fonda, wanted it that bad. So Bridget Fonda could be watching her father. That's really movie. cool. Yeah. All right. So I take it all back. The sex scene is an homage to Shampoo. The dialogue is basically the same oh, okay. as that scene <laughs> in the Hal Ashby film with Warren Beatty. Sid Haig acted opposite Pam Greer in four well-known exploitation films, including a few other films in the 70s. Like I said, he's the, the really evil guy in the Rob Zombie things, Devil's Rejects, etc., etc. He is the judge and he does like this wink at her at one point, which I think is a repeat of something he must have done in another movie because he's always the villain squaring off against her. So that was fascinating. That's cool. Finally, Heart 8. There's a reference to a movie that came out 
like two years earlier from PTA. And it's the same way that Pam Greer like practices with the gun is the same way a character in Heart Eight practices with the gun in the in that Paul Thomas Anderson film. No shit. Well, I'm glad you did your research here to dig, dig up these uh, sort of Easter eggs because as far as the Easter egg section of this goes, this is the least Tarantino of the Tarantinos, and that Absolutely. applies in multiple ways. And we'll get to that as we get to that. Uh, we ready for a, uh, a night at the theater? No. To answer your question, no. But right. we'll try. And now for your spoiler warning pleasure, the Mike Mike and Oscar Theatre Company presents a Quentin Tarantino scene reenactment interpretation. Wanna fuck? Yeah. This is the spoiler section for the film Jackie Brown, brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar as part of our Quentin Tarantino rewatch series. If you've not seen the movie yet, this is a good place for you to hit pause, go watch the film, get ready and snuggle in because it's like two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. But we'll be here waiting for you when you come back and have accomplished that task. If you've seen the movie already, if you just want to hear our thoughts about the spoilers or if we've hyped up the spoiler section for you so much in the non-spoiler section that you cannot go another minute without hearing what we have to say about it, this is where you want to be. It's all spoilers all the time from here on out for Mike, Mike, and Oscar presenting Jackie Brown, the film review, as part of the Quentin Tarantino rewatch series. Mike, we start off the spoiler sections talking about some trademark Tarantino things that we have. I mentioned a couple classic things in the production values. You're going to go on about those more so Mm -hmm. here. I'm going to talk about the story and the characters a little bit. So my classic Tarantino, or the titular version of trademark Tarantino, Mm -hmm. is basically the Samuel Jackson or Del Robbie character. Because I almost feel like this is a Tarantino character thrown into this Elmore Leonard novel. Because there's merit to that. Maybe it's just the way that Samuel was such a huge force in the last movie, and I recognize Tarantino movies as being as close to Pulp Fiction as possible, and Samuel is Pulp Fiction. So Ordell is the one out of place in this, you're saying? I'm saying he's a bit out of place because he's that Tarantino-like character, and I got a lot of reasons for that. He is a hunter or a predator the same way that uh, Jules is a predator in the last movie. He plays with his food. The Chris Tucker scene is a perfect example. I mean, he really persuades Chris Tucker. Beaumont has to be talked into getting into that trunk. Yeah. And he gives the camera that smirk at the end when he's, I got him in the trunk. (laughs) Y'all know what I'm going to do now. And it's brilliant, but it's a whole dance for him. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm the guy who got you out of jail. We're going to go to... I'll buy you Roscoe's chicken and waffles we're after. We're going to go chicken and waffles after this. And he he plays the music. He turns it up. He drives around not even the block. No, he just gets to the other side of that fence. Other side of the fence. I love that scene a lot. It's it's effed up, but it's, it's really good. But it is basically the same kind of predator, really enjoying his job, even though that's a sick... Yeah, it establishes him as the bad guy, the guy with no moral compass. It's strange, too, because he does have, like, at least a code of conduct. Yes. Uh, How he views Melanie is just bizarre, but it makes some sense. And Tarantino's, you know, bending over backwards to make sense of this man. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk about it in screenwriting thoughts in in a few minutes. The quote that stood out to me is, you can't trust Melanie, but you can always trust Melanie to be Melanie. 
And he's like, I'll keep untrustworthy people around me. I'll keep people who are incompetent. Like, I, as long as I know I can keep them in line. As long as I, yeah. I can control them. Right. And that it's makes kind of like a lot of sense. Operating principle, yeah. But well, that, he is. He is a. He's a gun runner. He's kind of a drug lord. He, he knows he's got to be on top of everything. So, but yeah. Of course, he's got the long speeches. Of course, he goes off on all the tangents. Like this is the character that does that the most. So I don't think I'm going off on a, on a limb to say that he's like the Tarantino dialogue enthusiast in this movie, whereas the other characters kind of stick to their lines more. They don't go off on the uh, all the anecdotes. Yeah, there's not that classic. Any any kind of classic Tarantino dialogue that we've highlighted in other movies, but I think this is also the most untarantino like of any Tarantino film, certainly that we've covered this far. Definitely in the three movies. Definitely. What's your major trademark? Tarantino? I've talked about the trunk shot. I've talked about the music and the crane shot. Just to go into a little more depth about those, and I have one other one. The crane shot to me is just beautifully done. He had to have had an operating operating crane or some kind of mechanical instrument to have that shot. So the whole thing we just played out. Once Beaumont actually gets in the trunk, you do see Samuel L. So the music plays a big role in this too because the car does leave frame and drive around back and the reason he doesn't have to go to a cut or a close-up or come in at all to let us know what's going on is the same song is repeating. It fades out as it gets out of frame and then it fades back in as the car drives back into frame but we're still from that far off perspective. We never get go in to get confirmation that it's, you know, if, if you were a witness to this murder from the perspective that you're given in the film, mm-hmm. your credibility could be perjured easily by a defense counsel because you don't actually see that it's Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> you just hear heard the same music and you notice that it's the same color car. But because we hear it's the same music and notice the car, we do see from afar Samuel L. get out. We know it's Samuel L. committing this murder of Beaumont and yeah. getting Chris Tucker's character out of the way. Prior to that, getting Beaumont into the car is that classic Tarantino trunk shot. All the negotiation, Roscoe's chicken and waffles, I just paid $10,000 get you out of jail i don't like getting in trunks of cars well i don't like spending ten thousand dollars on ungrateful people that whole negotiation is done look as so many classic negotiate uh, not negotiations but also dialogue in tarantino movies are done from yes. looking out from the inside of the trunk and looking up at our characters i've once heard from screenwriters that you can have a couple different kinds of scenes you can have a fight sex can be fights too romance mm-hmm. can be fights too you can have negotiations or you can have seductions Strangely enough, and and those are kind of Mike Nichols talked about. So is this a fight or a seduction? Three kind. Well, this is a negotiation, no question. Oh yeah, I didn't hear you say that. Or maybe this makes sense. Yeah, you said it, (laughs) and it it, it dawned on me. But this is definitely a negotiation. I mean, maybe you can call it a fight, but no, it's a negotiation because basically luring him to into the trap. Yeah, uh, setting a trap, luring him into that trap, and the trap is the trunk of a car with a great song inside of it. And the other trademark Tarantino, and again, it's it's fewer than from either of the three movies we've covered thus far. I think there's more to talk about with un-Tarantino stuff than there is with trademark Tarantino yep. stuff, but the random violence, I mean, there's no way that Melanie is expecting Lewis or De Niro's character to pull a gun on her and shoot her down in the middle of a mall parking lot. We're not expecting it. Right. I, or li- literally, I, I didn't remember that happened in the rewatch. It kind of scared me. I, I didn't know where his hand got the gun from. I had to rewatch it to see if there was any movement. Terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, and screwed up, and how does he not get caught there, and he can't even start the car correctly? Right. What a total fuck-up he is. And she is right, 100%. You could talk about that kind of being weak, because, again, it is a busy mall parking lot. It's not like they're isolated in the middle of nowhere. Somebody's going to hear those two gunshots. Samuel shoots Bobby De Niro after that. And that's the other thing that happens. Violence erupts out of nowhere. Walks away. Mm -hmm. Walks back. Right. So it may not be as well integrated into the script, or or the objections may not be explained away as classically as they are in other Tarantino. You know, like I do have a problem with a girl being gunned down in the middle of a mall parking lot and no reaction from anyone anywhere. Yes. Uh, but the fact that violence does erupt and is horrific 
life-taking violence erupts out of basically nowhere is kind of a trademark Tarantino scene. On that note, I'm going to call trademark Tarantino on this fact. You're going into the final showdown. You have a big speech from Samuel Jackson to Max Cherry mm-hmm. from Jackson to Forrester in the car. I Going back be a- to Cherry's bell bonds. These are my expectations. Yeah. I expect the money to be there, otherwise I'm going to shoot you. I expect nobody else to be there, otherwise I'm going to shoot yeah. you. Blah, blah, blah. You get that whole huge setup, and what are we walking into? We're walking into Pam Greer with a gun on Samuel Jackson, with a gun on Max Forrester. That is three parts of that four-part Mexican standoff that we've ended the last two movies with. Part four immediately comes Mm -hmm. out of the back room. That is Michael Keaton with a gun. Of course, we know he has a gun. He's a, he's a cop. So ATF that's your four-part yeah. standoff. But before that standoff could even happen, first time we got everybody shooting and squibs going off. Second movie, we got nobody shooting. Everybody talked down. This movie, where, oh my God, he's got a gun. She preempts all of it, and Michael Keaton blows him away. It's like the, the what's been known now as suicide by cop almost, or murder by cop, depending on how you want to classify what happened there. But yeah, that's a great point. It's like a slow playing out of the typical Mexican standoff that he's integrated in each Three movies in a yeah, row. He great himself up for that but he makes a twist on it every every time and he uses the previous movie's expectations to set the audience up which is really smart sneaky classic for me is just the epilogue because that little back and forth between robert forster and param greer are you scared of me and he just gives him the gives (laughs) her the little bit sign that is to me that's tarantino like going back and forth those cutesy little gestures and whatnot i'm a little bit of (laughs) a little bit you're you're really hot and yeah i'm a big boy scout i'm still a big boy scout and i'll go to the store and i'll buy a delphonics record but i'm a nerd and yeah you're you're really 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 tremendous so that scene gets me very angry i'm gonna talk about it later but definitely Sneaky classic Tarantino. How about you? Anything sneaky classic? Playing with the lighting and the silhouettes and the darkness that he does all throughout this movie. I can't really think of instances or examples where he does it for sure in the first two movies. But it just, it's just, maybe it's part of the way he shoots it and how he's just, the most underrated aspect of Tarantino may be in his cinematography. Yeah. Because the the scene where Ordell's talking to Jackie Brown and she turns on the lights because she knows this man is dangerous and I want to be able to see everything. And he's trying to talk in that smooth, seductive, twisted way still. So, he turns off the lights and gets his hands around her neck before she pulls the gun on him. Yeah. Same at the end of the movie where he ends up, he's very unsure what's going to happen. He ends up walking into the dark office and you just see Jackie's silhouette sitting at the table behind her and Ordell's checking to see what's going on. It's just all very, very well done. It's strong screenwriting too because you set it up. You set up the stakes with Chris Tucker right. and then to have it Pam Greer reenactment. The exact same steps, playing the, paying the bond, getting him out, yeah. But we're going in a different direction. Like we talked about in Toy Story 2, go figure. That side character, set it up, yeah. Chris Tucker's character. In terms of un-Tarantino, so we have a movie with such strong women, but it kind of sucks that you have this Melanie character in there who's a kept woman. All she wants to do is smoke all day and watch TV. She wants to break balls. It's a little She's surfer great. girl. It's just male gazy. I just think it's kind of weird. Like, I don't like that person. Like, I don't. Okay. I really don't. From a personal taste standpoint or because she's not well written? I I think she's written well. I I think that's fine. But what is her purpose? Her only purpose is to get shot 
in the parking lot, which is a payoff. Oh, Mike, she's just lazy, man. That's her purpose. She says it outright to him. What if my ambition is just to watch TV and get high? That's all she is. And yes, I, you know, we don't like, we, we tend to, as a society, especially look down on people with those types of ambition. Well, but she's trying exist. to double cross Ordell with right. Lewis. Uh, yeah. Towards the end. You know, yes. And Lewis immediately tells, she wants Ordell the quick that. score. Yeah. And Ordell's like, yeah, she would do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, which is a really good scene, by the way. Uh, it's a funny scene. That's but to me, because her ambitions are so low, she's the only one that's able to tell it like it is consistently. And the reason she's so vile to Lewis in the parking lot is because I don't care how dangerous they are. It's not like you're going to just pull a gun out in public right now and shoot me. Which she exactly does. Exactly what he does. <laughs> which I don't like for his character either. I don't either. I didn't like that. I wasn't like, crazy like, about that. You know, all he wants to do is chill and smoke and screw and watch TV. Like a light switch went on with him. You know, once he slicks back his hair. But yeah. he, he also doesn't have the precedent of being a killer. He was a bank robber. He was that's a bank too. robber with Ordell. So we don't know that he's this trigger-happy madman that's just going to get his balls busted for 20 minutes straight or yeah. even an hour straight and then go off and shoot somebody. I wonder if the, the writing was that he was going to be subdued all the all throughout being at Ordell's house versus how he's a maniac when he gets to the mall because of the weed, because he's under the I influence. Don't I don't I know. Don't, but I he's don't. very, he's almost like two different characters. Totally yeah. two different characters. I didn't see that coming at all. I don't think it was earned. In my opinion, that's that's a worse scene than I'm already getting to. But look, I mean, we won't see that male gaze again until Death Proof, but that's kind of on purpose with you know the whole foot fetish thing and whatever. Right. But to me, that storyline didn't work, and I, I was surprised. That, that that's fine. I, I mean, I agree in that there was some unearned, not earned is a good way to put it, but there's maybe some twists in there just for the sake of twists or to surprise the audience. And the, the gun, the pulling the gun in public, I have already said I have a huge it's problem It's in with. the book, fine. I, mm. I mean, I get it. It's, it makes sense. But you got to, De Niro's got to do different things throughout the performance. Yeah, He's not doing it. I agree. I also think as far as different Tarantino goes or un-Tarantino stuff, I know we do go back and forth. But we're in Reservoir Dogs. We have long scenes of us going flashbacks to kind of meet in the middle. And then Pulp Fiction is an entire movie that's out of order. Here we have opportunities where we could have gone back longer or gone for deeper flashbacks, and yet we only have quick cuts and quick scenes. We're never really languishing in the past. Mm -hmm. We're kind of always in the present here, and I thought that was a little interesting because it's not anything he's done yet. We could have saw Max go to the other guy's house when he's describing his night after he dropped off Jackie at her house, after she gets him, he gets her out of jail. He describes this whole other night where he broke into this guy's house, and he was waiting there for hours, and he was contemplating his profession and wondering about what he was going to do with his life. Yeah. None of that is shown. It's all just dialogue and all just a story being told through Max's conversation with Jackie on the page. It's a linear film. Yeah, it's very linear. It's and very un-Tarantino up to this point. Totally un-Tarantino, exactly. I agree. All right, we got a couple worse scenes, correct? I mentioned one sure. already with my uh, De Niro slash Melanie character arc there. My other one is, why doesn't Max Cherry go off with Jackie Brown at the end of it? You just mentioned the whole setup where he's pondering yeah. his, all of his life choices. She he walks he was into quitting, his too. life. You get that great song, and he's lo it's a love at first sight mm -hmm. thing. And he earns. Yeah. All right? He earns that relationship with her. She earns that relationship with him. They trust each other. They go out on a limb for each other. He risks his life for her, and she is willing, at the end of it, to reward him for all his work, to take him with her, and they should be together. Instead, they get this sad, sappy thing. Like, he already talked about going away and leaving. And, he, and yeah, then, he talked about leaving his profession behind and being done with the business. But he doesn't want to? Yeah. But all of a sudden, he doesn't want to? Now, maybe that's a 
crisis of conscience. He knows Jackie Brown's a not by the book woman, and he still kinds of. I got the impression that that character, Max Cherry's character, is an ex cop. So Max Cherry's character is definitely ex something, but yeah. he's definitely a Boy Scout. He's definitely right. kind of right. set in his ways, and he starts to moan and groan about like getting old, right? And then she goes to him like, "What bothers you about?" He's like, "Maybe my hair." But then he's naysaying all the stuff. He's like, "It's I don't really think about it." Right, I don't. right, right. So th- that is a bit foreshadowing to me because it's it's well written, and I recognize that. I wanted a happier ending. <laughs> I wanted more fan service at the end. I don't know what the novel entails. Bottom line, the way this movie it was setting me up for that, and it's it's not bittersweet. It's just bitter at the end when she leaves him. Yeah, I don't disagree. It's tough to disagree if you watch this movie yeah. and spend two and a half hours with these characters and you think, I mean, she doesn't have the money if it's not for him, right? So he's willing to take all these risks, be the one to encounter Ordell at the end for the sake of Jackie Brown, put his neck on the line time after time, be held at gunpoint as Ordell walks him through the office at the end. Yeah. I mean, his prize should be the love and affection of Jackie Brown, his one true love. And he doesn't grab it? He doesn't grasp it? No. His prize is just the 10%? J- Jackie invited him. Right. Uh, yeah, I agree. It's, it's it's it's. She was all about him. And again, look, we just talked about the twist for the twist's sake. It seems like that Lewis's murder was. So maybe this was the same thing, just to end on a sour note to get well, that graduate type ending. Terry, because at the end, yeah. you can't have the ending of Jackie Brown being alone and fix the camera fixated on her at the end if it's a happy ending and she's going away to Spain with her love. Like that, you wouldn't. You, that wouldn't afford that, right? We get the, the contemplation of Jackie Brown reliving everything that she just went through on her face. You're not getting that if she walks away with Max. I don't think. So yeah, maybe that's yeah, yeah. A big picture, macro view. I, I would agree with you. The movie sets you up that you want. You're rooting for those sure, characters. Sure, I agree, agree. And I don't think they set you up well enough in either direction. They give you just a little taste in either yeah, direction. Agree. You know, and it's just like fine. And I mentioned it. You get foreshadowing both ways, but. I think with the De Niro character, yeah, that's a powder keg scene for him, that whole thing through the mall, where he's finally put under pressure again, and he is cracking, absolutely. You're looking conspicuous. Yeah. I look conspicuous. He's grabbing, and and he's losing. He lost it. Oh, that's another reason I think that Melanie's the smartest person in the world. How does she escape De Niro's grip right there? She's in a busy mall. She's like, will you let go? Will you let go? I'll cause a fucking scene to get away from you. Exactly. Melanie's a genius. Smart, but dead. dead. <laughs> really stupid at the end of the day, honestly. She didn't read him like none of us did. Screwed up scene with him and uh, Samuel Jackson. Again, Samuel Jackson playing with his eventual prey. I mean, he actually has a, a scene at the end of all that where he's like, oh, it's Jackie Brown. And he admits that to the other guy and then he shoots So him. that kind of bothered me too, that the whole plot unravels because Samuel L. Jackson just needed 30 seconds on his own in the heat of the moment to think. He's able to figure out this entire double cross by Jackie Brown and figure out exactly what her motives were and how Max Cherry fits into this plot step by step all the way through by just like putting his head down for a second in the van yeah. and figuring it all out. That I thought was kind of, that was my biggest actual complaint with the plot. Uh, I, I thought that was a little, little. I would have wanted more. I didn't love it either. I was just like a slimy plot line. Last few watches of it, yeah. I mean, I, I really don't like it. Now, there's a lot I do like about it. I love this is. If this movie came out in 2019, it'd be heralded, which is weird to say about a Tarantino movie. I feel like after everything that's come out with him in the last couple of years with Uma Thurman and all that, but this would be like a very feminist movie, right? Sure. I mean, there's a strong female protagonist in the middle of this, not to mention a strong black female protagonist right in the center of all this, in the middle of all this action, playing all these men like a fiddle. It's fascinating how, again, Tarantino, this would be the perfect plot to go suspense, right? Where we're in the POV of Jackie Brown, 
we're in on her plan, even if we're not in on all the ins and outs of the plan. But all we really know here is that she's playing everybody. We don't know how it's happening. Mm -hmm. We don't know when it's happening. We don't even get that phone call to Michael Keaton at the end. We just have Michael Keaton show up. Because after she's practicing with the gun, she realizes it's not going to work. She's not going to outgun right. this man. She's not quick enough. She doesn't have the, yeah, whatever the reasons whatever. are. She's not a gunman. And yeah. she's, not a, she's not one of these guys. This guy's an arms expert. Ordell also, I thought, got a little... I don't know if he called social justice. I know he he relies on certain talking points about the black community in regards to getting himself out of trying to talk his way out of jams. Like he tries to talk his way out of the having to pay for Jackie's bail bond, the ten thousand dollars, the second time. Yep. By saying how Jackie was screwed by these white cops, she got was found with you know a bag of coke on her. You know how they were treating her; it wasn't enough to actually sell, but they were charging her with intent. You know how the system is. Basically, talking about systemic oppression. And he brought up another point, how when Jackie's got the gun on him in her apartment at the beginning, he's talking about, man, the cops are messing with your head. This is just more black-on-black violence, and they're just trying to sow distrust amongst our community. Okay, I understand, on a big level, it's gross that he's using those points to only get himself out of trouble yeah, and try to slip his way. he's written by Elmore Leonard and Quentin Tarantino. Right, exactly. Well. Yeah. That said... These are obviously very real talking points and very real problems. Sure. And it just goes to show how long they've been at in conversation in the black community. I thank God they're coming to a head and seem to be getting much more media attention now in 2019, but this is back in 97. Yep. There was a light shined on them, and they were still talking points enough where they were written into a Quentin Tarantino movie. I think that's kind of important in Kyra to forward thinking. Definitely. I just think it's, it's worth noted, noting as well that this is... Again, forward thinking not only in the feminist way, but maybe some 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 racial weights too. Uh, even though it's written again by Leonard Elmore and Quentin Tarantino. In a lot of the you know promotional interviews, uh, Lawrence Bender was talking about how when he was marketing Fresh, which is a great movie, mm -hmm. I really really enjoy that movie. I studied it back in school, etc. Samuel Jackson stars in that. And when he was pitching it to studios, they're like, "No, nah, we have our black movie." And, the, and he's like, "What? Yeah, it's, Do you have that's your terrible. white movie?" Right. Do you have, what does that mean? <laughs> That's how you should be thinking. And, yeah. and, he, and he's like, I, I can't believe if that you was go the case, by so. yeah, if you go by quota filling, which a, a lot of cops did back even back in the nineties, a lot yeah. of studios obviously did. Maybe studios still do. That's what the whole fight has been against. Quota filling is racist. That's that's its own inherent form of racism. So of course, yeah, that, that's disgusting. So let's get into some uh, screenwriting advice, Mike. Yeah, what did Quentin Tarantino have for us to say about uh, how he approached this? An excellent article at creativescreenwriting.com. It's called Method Writing with Quentin Tarantino. It's by Eric Bauer, who interviewed Tarantino after Jackie Brown. So my biggest takeaway is that method writing, and, and this is my interpretation of it, because you can go into the ins and outs. I'm not going to break that down. Method for you writing. Okay. Method writing essentially forces you to identify the goal, the objective, and the motivation of a particular character, of each character, really, in every scene. And you write from that perspective every time. So what you write the hmm. scene from one guy, then you make sure the scene works from the, the other person. You write it that way to where the characters will come alive and start talking on their own, in a way, after you get absorbed in it. Basically, if you are working through them towards the ends that they want, towards their aims. That makes sense to me. Because if you put a character sure. with one motivation and you put another character with an opposing motivation or another motivation and they start to try and get their way, now you have a scene. Now you have you natural conflict each other's in different ways, yeah. built in. So Tarantino 
is not the type of guy where he analyzes his scenes or he, he doesn't talk about, I have a hard analytical brain when I write this. I try to just have my brain connect to my hand and I, I try to just have these characters do what they need to do. Ideally, great advice. Yeah. And I just I, I just did give him a lot of props for being forward thinking with the race issue, with the gender issue. If you follow this advice to a T, it's kind of... Play devil's advocate on myself here, though. Wouldn't that necessitate the input if you're going to write about minorities from minorities? If you're going to write about a gender that is not yours from that gender, wouldn't that necessitate the input from those different people as opposed to just assuming I'm a guy that's capable of thinking in all minds and being able to dictate what these people would say, even though I'm not these characters? So I'll answer your question by putting myself and my buddy Double R. Answering a question I didn't ask. <laughs> no, this same question that you just asked me yeah. was basically asked to George R. R. Martin. He's like, how do you write Oh, G-Money. G-Money. As you call him. G-Baby. Right. G-Baby Kid. <laughs> I can't roll my R's. <laughs> my buddy. Yeah. G-R-R-M. <laughs> Mike, he was asked that question, and they're like, how do you write women so well? And he did not give the as good as it gets chauvinist answer from whatever that Jack Nicholson character's name was. He said, because, you know, women are human beings. Arya Stark's a human being. She wants this. She wants that. That's great. And, and that's yeah, his answer. That's, but basically, that's... I write women characters like I write male characters like I write And male. I think there's there's affordability in that answer, too. Like if, if you are truly, I hate using the word woke or enlightened, but if you are of that level where you do understand how... Like, you know, women are supposed to be treated equally, then yeah, I think you can come from that. And who's, I'm not saying that Quentin Tarantino doesn't have that mindset. I'm just, you know, asking the question. He's certainly not black, right? No. I mean, he's certainly not a black man. I still think there's room for him to invite over or have other writers in the room with him. You know, the auteur thing is kind of going out the window in a way nowadays because we're making movies that are bigger budget, that are for everybody, you know, and you're getting input from a diverse, above-the-line right. cast and crew. And it's, it's not to it's say getting that, different. that he didn't work with Pam Greer. He may have worked with Samuel L. Jackson. He may have worked with all these issues. Well, on you know, Greta, I mean, question. look, I mean, Greta Gerwig is not a, a, a boy. Right. She's not a theater kid. How does she relate to she Lucas wrote Tra Hedges? Tracy Letts, yeah. No, it's good. How does it's she fair. write Tracy Letts? I mean, you know, you have to. You have to do the, uh, you know, the relatability thing. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's a fine answer. And again, maybe Tarantino has reached that, and hopefully he has. I don't know. You know, for as much as we've been following him in the years we've put into watching this guy, I really don't remember a whole lot of, like, exposés coming out or background stuff coming out about him. You've had your stories about stuff that has happened on set, mm -hmm. but can you remember any kind of big breakdown of what the man thinks or where he came from or anything like that? Well, the, the feud is between him and Spike Lee is yes. at a fever pitch at this point. And it was funny because a lot of the promotional interviews, I uh, watched a lot of those or had him on in the background kind of, you know, Spike Lee is speaking out against him. He's yep. like, I don't like his use of the word. It's casual. When I put him in my movie, Girl 6, it was basically as, you know, it was a parody of himself and I can't believe he played it. Yeah. And then when Spike Lee comes out and, and throws shade and talks some trash about Quentin Tarantino, Tarantino f fires back, but then Samuel Jackson rises up, and Samuel said some things at Cannes or whatever they were for this Q&A, because he's like, look, Spike Lee's got a problem with Tarantino. It's obviously a little problem. Spike Lee's a little guy. And I wasn't yeah. going to say it, but okay. <laughs> so, I mean, so Samuel, and then Spike Lee's like, look, I don't have a problem with Well, Spike Sam. threw shade at Sam, too. 
Yeah. In that. He said if you, just because Samuel L. Jackson kisses Quentin Tarantino's ass, this is a quote in the Wikipedia article. Yeah. So I, I, just because Samuel L. Jackson kisses Quentin Tarantino's ass doesn't mean that all black people do. So there's a whole tension all over that triangle there. Look, I, Tarantino talks a lot in this article about writing villains, and he basically says, I don't believe that there's good guys and bad guys. I believe you come from a perspective when you write any character, and that's their perspective. Who they are is what they do kind of thing. And and he says, quote, I do have sympathy for the devil. And he tries to write that throughout all this stuff. And these characters do terrible things, and yet we get all these little ticks. And to be honest, charms from Ordell Robbie and from, from, from all these characters. It's just funny how sometimes it works and sometimes it's... It just plain doesn't. And I would say we've had our issues with the words in past movies and there's been that same justification has been given and it just hasn't flown here. Maybe it does. I don't know. So there's a big thing about that. The use of the word uh, in this article. So I'm just going to quote Tarantino. and We'll leave it at that. He doesn't believe any word should be powerful enough to be outlawed from the language and outlawed from an artist's toolkit. He's proven that he's proven that he believes that. Uh, he doesn't believe in the whole white guilt thing. He's proven that he believes that. Quote, quote, I just don't feel the whole white guilt thing and pussyfooting around race issues. I'm completely above all that. I've never worried about what anyone might think of me because I've always believed that the true of heart recognized the true of heart. If I'm doing what I'm doing and you're coming from the same place, you'll see it. No question about it. And if you're coming with an axe to grind, with your own baggage and your own hate, then you might react strongly to where I'm coming from. Now, what I said that just there is that if you have a problem with my stuff, you're a racist. I practically said that. Well, I truly believe it. Quote, unquote. I am glad he's a man steeped in his beliefs. Yeah, I mean, basically just turn the tables in that quote. Like, if you think I'm a racist, you're a racist. Right? Am I crazy? No, I think that's his interpretation. Yes, I agree. Human I agree. Nature, I agree. If, you're, if you're calling me a racist, I'm going to call you a racist. Right. I'm so not a racist. Is that, that right at all? I have no it's idea. A different, yeah, it's a different discussion. But he's trying to say I'm true of yeah. heart. I'm trying to use these words to take this thing out of him. Now, the only part of that I will respond to is that our job, uh, we are critics. And when it when it we feel it impacts, when it impacts yeah. the film, we have to bring it to the yeah. to the attention of the what last we do two here. movies. Right. Masterpieces, if not for those, right? How many scenes, right? Right, and they've lost points because it lose it, points. It, it's unwatchable. Yeah. It's it, how are we gonna watch that fifty years from now? Yep, yeah. okay, agree. Okay. So that's They're that's great the only movies. Except I, you I, have the except you have the asterisk. Yeah. I think it's you know it's important to get his perspective. It's important to hear it. Judge it for yourself. Take it for what it's worth. That's the only part I'll comment on and say that you kind of you can't restrict movie critics or people in general that want to speak their mind about it. Yeah, and we're not racist because you're so not racist. Exactly. Give me a break. That's a that's, give me a freaking break. That's a that's a take, as I'll say. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, you got Easter eggs and connections to the Tarantino. So I really don't have much, like I kind of alluded to in the non-spoiler section, and I just want to point out that Mental Flaws was a good spot. They've had, I think they have breakdowns of every Tarantino film I haven't seen yet, but I think they have like 15 things you didn't know or 12 things you didn't know about yeah. every single Tarantino film. So some of the stuff I got from there, I got it from a couple other places. Again, we were really crunched for time for even getting this episode done, so I apologize for not being as source-filled as I usually am. But I know a lot of the restaurants are duplicated, like... Like a lot of the uh, fast food restaurants, 
are in this movie that are that are in other Tarantino films. There's the brands. There's always those Tarantino brands. There's yeah. like Red Apple Cigarettes, Big Kahuna Burger. We talked about that. That's not here, but yeah. He likes has his, his own line it's, of things. There's a Tex-Mess re- re- restaurant yeah. from in the mall. There's and, also, uh, he, apparently, Pam Greer, Jackie Brown, drives the same car that Butch drove in Pulp Fiction. Yep. But as far as like Tarantino-verse building... This movie, and I've seen it on a couple sites, IFC had one, I think Esquire had one. This movie's kind of considered as the lone outlier of Tarantino's Tarantino-verse. And Tarantino mentions that in a lot of the interviews. He's like, this is not in my own world, so to speak. Right. I have a few little connections to stuff I like, but basically this is supposed to be Elmore Leonard's universe. Right, and this is what it's considered, I guess, and especially on fandom.com and stuff like that. But this is not the Tarantino-verse, it's the Elmore Leonard-verse. And the evidence of that is in the shared character of Michael Keaton's. Right. The Nicoletti ATF agent character, how he shows up in this movie. And he does show up for a cameo in Stoderbergh's Out of Sight two years later or one year later. Apparently, though Miramax owned the rights to the Nicoletti character, it was Tarantino who told Miramax not to seek payment for Universal to use the Nicoletti character in Out of Sight. Right. So he didn't want to you know, ask for any kind of compensation or any licensing well, fee or anything like that. That was a cool thing to do, just being cool right. in Hollywood for a change without <laughs> warring over right. the repeat use of a character. But I also think it has a bit of an ulterior motive because he, Tarantino bought the rights to three Elmore Leonard novels, right. Freaky Deaky and Kill Shot were the other two. He was actually choosing for a long time between Freaky Deaky and Kill Shot, one or the other, and then have another director make Rum Punch. Turns out he just made Rum Punch, a.k.a. Jackie Brown, and he didn't make either of the other ones, but I wonder if he was just going to do kind of an Elmore Leonard universe, and if this movie was just as big of a hit as Pulp Fiction was, would he have made two or three films in this universe. It's interesting. It's a, it's a certainly a curious what if if this one had made its money and seen because what would have happened. Because he'll make multiple spaghetti westerns later on. Yep. Or he'll at least make them look like spaghetti westerns. He'll make two Kill Bill movies. So he's not afraid of doing a couple things. Right. Or the same thing more than once. And he's certainly not afraid of sharing universes. As right. we've seen all throughout this. The only other interesting curiosity that was brought up is that there's a scene where Max Cherry is exiting a movie theater in this yeah, film. I like and this. the song playing in the end credits of the film Max Cherry is exiting is the same song yeah. playing during the end credits of this movie. So in theory, Jackie Brown could be a movie within this Elmore universe that Tarantino directs. That's why he lets her go, because he knows that... Uh, that's how the movie's supposed to end? That's how the movie's supposed to end, <laughs> and he's already seen the movie? I don't know, but yet... Basically, that's his epilogue, Max Cherry. He's just going to keep going to the movies. (laughs) Right. And bailing people out of jail. Something that starts soon and sounds good. Being Dog the Bounty Hunter from time to time. Yeah. and uh, Working with Winston, that's it. And working with David Lynch in in Twin Peaks. Which was a cool move on his part. He's worked with some famous people. Wow, that's a lot of movie. That's a lot of recording. That's a lot of episode right there. Ready to get out of this thing, huh? I'm so tired. <laughs> We're tired. These are long movies. We got a lot of life going on around. Uh, what are we even ending with, Mike? I don't even know. What are we? Outro. That's it. Your final thoughts. You want final thoughts? I don't know. Probably expectation driven. Probably something that's going to be considered a disappointment by a lot of people that haven't seen it recently and kind of went into it thinking it was another Tarantino film. A ballsy follow up to the last yeah. one. 
you know, I, I love the substance of some of this. I just think it's it's really strange to follow up a banger with like a real slow burn. He's a strange guy. That's yeah. for sure. I I said this to you before we started today. If this was not Quentin Tarantino presents Jackie Brown and this was like Brian De Palma's Jackie Brown, right. I feel like it'd be better received. Definitely. Because the you just have these expectations that go into every Tarantino watch. Yeah. Sam Mendes movie. Right. Right. Totally different. So deal. I guess that's one way to look at it. James uh, Mangold. <laughs> right. Yeah. I can't even think of another director right now. I'm so shocked. Rob Reiner. <laughs> that would be a movie. Rob Reiner's Jackie Brown. <laughs> Ron Howard. Uh, Ron Livingston. No, it's an actor. <laughs> We're shot. We're yeah. shot to shit. The Duplass Brothers presents. <laughs> All right, guys, we want to know your thoughts, questions, comments, concerns about this. Any Tarantino rewatch episode, any Pixar rewatch episode, anything else that's happened here in the MMO Empire, you can reach out to us. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Facebook, Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Instagram, MM and Oscar on Twitter, Mike, Mike, and Oscar at gmail.com.com, and on Reddit. We're available everywhere. You hear podcasts, tune in, Stitcher, SoundCloud, if they ever decide to get their stuff working again, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, etc., etc. We love hearing from you. We love interacting with you. And we certainly really do appreciate if you uh, appreciate what we do here. If you can leave us a five-star review on iTunes, those do go a long way in helping us yes, get the word thank out. thank you so much. Michael, any words of wisdom here and what's coming next and what are we doing and what am I doing and can I go to sleep? <laughs> we got Toy Story 3. We got Cars. I think we're going to do the latter first, but I'm not going to guarantee it. Those are the next two we're Pixar's. We're just going to go silent for the next five days. Before Toy Story 4. <laughs> And Toy Story 4 just got good reviews, so we're yeah. really happy about that. That's what we're doing next. Got an MMOW smushed in there, which yeah. is fun. We'll, you know, we'll recap the NBA Finals a little bit. Mm-hmm. I don't want to talk anymore, Knicks. <laughs> I don't want to do that. So that might be a, uh, you know, a, a point of contention between us. I don't want to do these weird New York Knicks conversations to leak on air <laughs> because it's 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 our. It's our weird peccadillo. Well, it'll all be over in like a, two weeks, right? It'll be over fast. Yeah, so. The doom will descend <laughs> quickly. But listen, we're having a blast rewatching these films, uh, and uh, we'll keep doing it until uh, we're ready for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. In terms of wisdom, I would just say, uh, look, this can't be a bad movie if you begin with the music. Mm that this film begins with. And I, I love that song so much. I'm really trying to get you to play it for the outro right now. <laughs> is he playing it? Guys, is he playing it? This is meta. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't even have a witty response. Guys, uh, when reality sucks. Because he doesn't know if he can get the song <laughs> yet. watch movies with us. We are trying to take the stuffiness out of awards season and make it a year-round endeavor for your enjoyment. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar, and we'll check you out next time. See you. Let sing it. Across a hundred and fifty, just trying to catch a woman that's me.